0: It's time for you to add value. This episode is brought to you by Perfect Publishing. Perfect Publishing is a different approach to publishing a book. Perfect Publishing is sharing a project of hope called the Dose of Hope. We carefully chose heroes of hope who exemplify living a life they created through faith, hope, patience, and persistence. No matter what page you open to in this mini cube of hope, you will find a leader with a big heart. You will see you are not alone. The authors may share similar challenges that only hope and action could resolve. Get your free ebook at addvalue2life.com slash dose. Addvalue2life.com dose. Our guest today is Chris Noggle. Chris went from pro snowboarder to money mogul. Chris has dedicated his life to being America's number one money mentor, with a core belief that success is built not by the resources you have, but by how resourceful you can be. His success and national acclaim have come in large part to what he's learned firsthand from seeking a better way to wealth creation and preservation than he learned growing up. Chris has built and owned 19 companies, with his businesses being featured in Forbes, ABC, House Hunters, and his very own HGTV pilot in 2018. He is currently founder of The Money School and money mentor for The Money Multiplier. Chris Nagel shares his journey from selling t-shirts in high school to professional snowboarder, selling gear and building his own pro shop, to becoming a financial advisor and then really learning about money and how to help others with the financial knowledge to fuel lasting freedom. Well, Chris, thanks so much for jumping on the show today. I appreciate you taking the time to hang out with me and have a conversation. Yes, my honor and pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So typically, let everybody start just with their own entrepreneurial journey and, you know, what got them to, to where they are. And I know yours is uh, filled with ups, downs and, <laughs> and sideways. So
1: it's a, it's a crazy story that starts with uh, a boy that was born into a, you know, just a normal lower middle-class family. And dad was an alcoholic. Mom had to raise me and it was, uh, it was a big struggle for it. Just like any other single mom. And because we didn't have things, you know, I was always taught to dream. I was taught to be a visualizer because if we couldn't buy it, my mom just said, draw it. So that's what I did as a young child. And that, that served me well because it, it got me in the habit of the one thing that too few people do, and that's visual, visualization. And as a child, I can remember all the things I wanted to do from, you know, dirt bike tracks to four-wheelers and skateboards and snowboards and eventually surfing. I, I would always visualize it. And then I would draw pictures of it, whether it was in school and trapper keepers or at home, you know, on my little desk. And it, they got so vivid, especially with skateboarding and snowboarding, that the the vision got so vivid that I would dream about it. And I remember, like, I, I couldn't differentiate sometimes between the dream being real or not real. And you know that that went on for a long time. And you know when I when I got to be sixteen, I'd you know begun working on farms at fourteen and. I got a big boy job at 16 and i remember i was working at this restaurant and the owner of the restaurant was a jerk and he treated me so terrible that one day i went in and i just quit not knowing that was going to literally be the moment the line in the sand moment where i quit trading hours for dollars but i i was worried my mom was going to be upset that i quit my first real job outside of the farm and some odds and ends and i came home so i had a plan and i said mom i quit my job but you know a lot of kids say that right but i want to start a clothing line called fat clothing company phat in the basement and my mom was fully supportive so i started printing shirts after school with my art teacher mr mahalski printed a dozen long sleeve white t-shirts i sold all all of them bought two dozen and started doing that and that's what i did to make money you know from 16 to 17 and it got pretty good i was an ambitious young kid trying to be a pro snowboarder at this point i had that vision in my head of being a snowboarder and the the t-shirt company know most people like oh wow you became an entrepreneur at 16 no no no. hold on a second i did but the entrepreneur the little piece of paper in 1992 saying i was an entrepreneur didn't mean anything to me it was just how do i make enough money so that i can afford to put gas in the car to get me to the resort to snowboard that's that's the only purpose this company saw that, that it served and as i would travel the snowboard contest i would stop at the snowboard shops and skateboard shops along the way and sell my clothes to them and I started seeing this pattern of all these skateboard snowboard shop owners that they, to me at at 16, 17 years old had the perfect life. They, they were in their business doing everything that they wanted to do loving life. And then when they wanted to go snowboarding, they just said, Hey guys, can you watch the shop for a few hours? I'm going to go snowboard. So right then and there, I was like, I got to have my own shop. So I got the idea for fat man board shops because we had fat clothing and I was the man. So fat man. And that was at 17. But this is where reality kicked in a little bit for me, because up to this point, I was just a visualization kid. I, everything I dreamed and believed, and you know, they had, most of those things came true, but now venturing out to do a skateboard shop costs 70 grand, you know, and that, that's what I penciled it out to cost to open this 1,000 square foot store in the Lockport Mall. And everyone that I knew that I talked to about it said I was crazy, mm-hmm. said I shouldn't do it, say I was gonna risk it and lose it all, my father specifically. That resulted in me sending him uh, cats in the cradle just because he didn't believe in my dream. But uh, (laughs) neither here nor there. And uh, I remember I I almost gave up. You know, there's a certain point. I have a 23-month-old now. And, you know, my daughter doesn't have have anything that she can't do. Think about that. Like, there's not a child out there that has limitations. There's nothing in their mind that they dream up that they can't do. They want to climb this, they climb that. There's no one telling them this is not something you can't do and at 17 this is probably one of the first times in my life that someone started really knocking down my dreams saying this is stupid this is a bad idea they were trying to get me to conform
0: to their failed realities
1: their failed dreams and it almost it almost worked
0: yeah there's a there's a real power in in that i love that you know between 16 and 17 you were asking yourself the question how do i make enough money to keep gas in the car, to keep life moving. And, and of course that's how much money you made because your brain figures out how to answer that question. And then the conversation comes up regularly. In fact, I told somebody uh, this morning that I think the next book I'm going to write is about the mind of a child and, and how, and how we, you know, some people talk about, well, it's the innocence. No, it's the imagination. I think there's just this combination of the, th- the thoughts that kids can have and it's imagination visualization but like you're just mentioning the belief in everything is possible there are no limitations there's no you know no doesn't exist right they're willing to see it try it see it try it and and believe that it's possible and and of course at some point adults start telling them oh that won't work oh you can't do that oh you're gonna get hurt oh be careful and and then of course the worst ones are oh don't dream too big right and, and and of course it's a parent operating out of their at their highest level you know their highest potential telling a child that you know oh, don't you know don't don't risk so much right don't take don't take those chances because the parents already conformed like you said and and they've bought into the limitations. And of course their natural instinct is to pass that on out of a, out of love and out of protection. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I'm so happy you're writing that book. It's a
1: much needed book, but people need to read it and understand that whether you're a child or an adult, or, you know, even, even if you're in your late sixties, like nothing has changed except for your outside environment. Mm-hmm. You've just allowed you, your, yourself, your mind, and, and your dreams to be somebody else's. I mean, Everything that was happening to me at 17, it, let, me, let me go back because this is such an important thing. All my success, and we'll get into some more, I've, I've just got so many things I've done, but all my success has been because I've failed to, to allow myself to listen to other people tell me I can't do something. When I hear the word can't or don't or these, it just challenges me to do more. And I never knew this as a kid, but, you know, I read so many books and I don't care if it's the Bible or, you know, Dale Carnegie or anyone that you read about. It's talked about in every one of these books, whatever you ask of life, life will gladly give you whatever you ask of life, life will gladly give you. But there's that's not the end of the story. There's a lot of work. And there's a lot of things we need to really understand when we, we hear that statement. And Earl Nightingale, if you follow him, and everybody should watch Earl Nightingale's The Strangest Secret in the World, it spells out the formula. And it basically says that, you know, there's, there's one thing that differentiates success and failure. And that one thing is creation. I was a creator, I still am today. And the problem in life though, is statistically, if you took 120 year olds and you ask them if they're gonna be successful at 60, they'd all say yes but statistically by social security administration, by the time they hit 60, only five of them will be financially secure. And only one will be 1%. Like think about that folks, 1% will be successful or wealthy, I should say, only five will be financially successful. 95 of those 120 year olds will not be financially successful. And there's only one reason. There's only one differentiator between the successful and the unsuccessful folks. And it is this simple don't complicate life. It is creation. The 95 that didn't make it and the 95 percenters that I call them, and I, I do this on stage all the time, they were the ones that decided to conform to other people's failed realities, other people's failed dreams. And we all have to deal with this. And don't be mad at your family, your friends for telling you you shouldn't, you couldn't. They just, they just haven't dreamed or followed their dreams. They've, they've, they've conformed. And because that's all they know, they want you to do that because that's the comfort zone. If you live in a comfort zone, you are conforming, strive, do, do hard things, do, do the stuff that nobody else is willing to do. That's all I did. There's no, there's no magic to why I've been successful. I've, I've created. And in creation, you will fail. And I failed a lot. Now, I, I did manage to get those skateboard shops up and running. I did become a pro snowboarder. And during that journey, but that journey was going so good that I got in a comfort zone. And then the, the dot-com crash happened when the planes hit the tower. I'll never forget. I'm driving in my car to my new store in Orchard Park, New York, and I remember hearing the planes hitting the tower. I didn't know what any of this meant. Hmm. And this is very important because it's very much like millennials today or any of the younger folks today, if they're listening, you're living in a world, in an economy where you don't know any downside. You've, you've had it too easy. And I don't mean to say this, but I'm going to. You've had it too easy. Everything has been on the up and up. Everything's been easy. Like either it's been provided for you or, or it hasn't been hard to get and making money has been easy. Well, of course it has. You've been in a, the longest bull run history that we've had. And I thought I was there, I was there and I can speak from experience. So everything was perfect. It's a pro snowboarder. I had my dream shops. I was expanding. I was opening more locations. Like life was good. I wasn't making a ton of money, but life was awesome. And then just one event called you know the dot-com recession or when 9 11 whatever you want to you know cue it up to sent everything in a tailspin because my store's sales dropped 30 percent and i actually had to figure things out i couldn't afford to pay for my truck payment i had to get a job and i uh, thank god you know i think back to this i my first place i applied robert was little caesar's pizza (laughs) and we all love little caesar's pizza i think but they (laughs) My friend worked there and he delivered pizzas at night. And I thought, this is perfect. I'll, I'll just deliver pizzas in the off time and that'll pay pay my car payment. Well, they literally told me, they said, we're not hiring right now. What do you mean? Little Caesars doesn't need delivery drivers? Come on. So I put my resume out. But remember, I've just been self-employed. I've, I didn't really have much of a resume. Two years of community college, no real accolades. Just I opened these shops and this skateboard or this clothing line. And the only people that reached out to me were Wall Street firms. So I said, all right, well, Grandma, can you show me like how to get a suit? So we got a suit, a zip up tie. I went to the interviews and I ended up taking a position with a huge financial firm. It's totally out of place. My biggest mind mindset problem was I had to put a suit on every day. Pro snowboarder doesn't wear a suit. I'm sorry. Like we wear hoodies and beanies and baseball hats. And now I got to wear a suit every day. I literally had to find a skateboard snowboard company that made suits and order those just so that I could feel normal. And i know that doesn't make sense to many but when when you're so like mindset into one side and all of a sudden you flip quickly you pivot it's hard for your mind to adapt and i was having struggles with adapting and one cool thing though when i entered wall street i knew nothing about finance knew nothing about money they taught me everything i needed to know but one thing i was good at is i was good at looking at my surroundings and i looked i was in the bullpen you know when when i got there when they tell you to call you dial and then that was it. That's all we did. Dial, 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 and then call, 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 set appointment, appointment, appointment. And I watched all the guys in the outside glass offices, the big earners, you know, the top producers. They didn't do what I was doing. They got there at nine. They left for a two hour lunch and then they were gone at 430. And I said, you know what, if I want one of those outside offices and I had talked to some of these top producers and they said it takes about five to seven years to really start getting, you know, getting where we what we are. And I said, well, how do I do it in three And i just figured it out just do everything they're unwilling to do they get there at nine i'm gonna get there at seven i'm gonna get all my paperwork done before the bell rings and that way i'm i'm not wasting time doing the things that they are before they get into the money making activities then through lunch all right well if i'm if everybody's taking lunch why don't i start calling people during lunch so i just sat and called people partly because i couldn't afford to go to lunch and then (laughs) At 4.30 when they left, I went out and I saw people at their homes. I said, you know what? Why is all this on the phone? Why don't I go talk to people? Better at my skateboard shops. I talked to people. I sold them things. Let me go talk to people. So I went out and I went in the field. And because of that, I became one of the top producers, one of the top advisors. And I rose, you know, I was the top guy. And number one, I made 74 grand my first year. And it just went up north from there. And I remember I I gabbled in real estate in 06 and 07, did two flips uh, those two years. And then 08. Before the great recession, I took a big leap. One of my stores, leases came due, my main store, and I needed a place. So there was a dilapidated paint store, two buildings down, had a for sale sign, and I put it under contract. Not knowing the how, like the how was, how am I gonna get 370 grand to do this? I just focused on the what, I need this place. And by focusing on the what and the why, as some people would focus that on, the how just figures itself out. And I found the 370 grand from hard money lender, but what what came next was not in the plan. And what came next was the great recession. It hit me like a Mack truck. I was one payment away from being completely bankrupt. I'd exhausted everything. My retail stores were plummeting through the recession. This is the second recession I'd been in. So now I understood what this was and I understood that this wasn't going to go well. Um, I, I thought everything was just going to fall apart. And I, I remember, uh, my girlfriend who had just moved into my house, her name's Larissa. She's now my wife and you know, we're, we're, she, we have the child together, but, um, I went home one night, dire straits. I I had nowhere else to turn. My family doesn't have money. And she had a job at a bank. And I said, sweetie, I need your help. I need your help paying the mortgage. I need your help paying the bills. I need your help uh, paying the utilities. And I'm going to move my friend Pete into that bedroom down there. And Jessica's going to move in upstairs. Any questions? And I was stupid enough to actually think I had a 50-50 shot of this actually working. My friends later were like, dude, you had a 10% shot of that working. But it worked. I think she kind of liked me. And that's how I made it through 2008. It was not easy. It took everything I had just to not go bankrupt. I got that plaza done, refinanced it. And then I, from 08 to 2014, I dove into real estate and I was still an advisor, still pro snowboarder. I was picking the pieces up and I was just putting every penny I could and leveraging everything I could to buy real estate because Warren Buffett said it, buy low. Well, real estate was cheap i bought it and i got up to 36 units by 14 just to go around make mistakes and lose it all 30 in 36 units in 2014 is what i was at and then i had to sell all 36 units i had bought our dream house 171 radcliffe me and larissa we remodeled it it was like just a dream at that point had a couple Audis in the park in the driveway and all of that vanished i'd made some mistakes the bank uh wouldn't give me a mortgage on my 37th property because I, my debt-to-income ratio was just out of whack. I would just gone too fast and didn't understand money at this point. I understood traditional finance, but I didn't understand money like I do today. And uh, I, it was the hardest time in my life. Sold 171 Radcliffe, sold the cars, sold the bedroom set. I'll never forget sitting on the floor while people from Craigslist came in and took my bed. And they took my dressers. Folks, sometimes when you hit rock bottom, you just... You just start thinking different. You start doing different things. Well, it's about as close to rock bottom as I ever got. And it resulted in me and Larissa breaking up at that time. And it resulted in me packing a backpack with just enough. And I got on a plane and I went to Thailand. I don't, don't ask me why it was Thailand. I just went there. And I spent almost a month there just finding myself, figuring it out. And when I came back, I changed some things. I changed the people I was surrounding myself with. Um, I kind of put some people in time out. Cause they just, you know, when you hit rock bottom, everybody goes into defense mode and they start saying, I told you so mm-hmm. people start saying, can't you just be happy? You know, and I love my mom, she's my unconditional one, but you know, my mom was like, can't you just be happy? Can't you just live off of the money you make it as an advisor? Why do you have to do all this real estate stuff? Why all these businesses? Sometimes people can't understand why you do things, but it doesn't matter why you do things you have a calling to do what you were put here to do not what your mother your father your friends and your coworkers tell you you should be doing you're here to do what you you're meant to do and i was meant to do something and i almost lost my way but i got back and i had some some people invite me to a mastermind i put 5 grand on a credit card that i didn't have i was freaking out and i went to california greg reed okay robert it was greg reed's uh mastermind i went out there and uh i remember being around all these legends, the guy that founded Make-A-Wish, the founder of Ugg Boots. I knew nothing about their story. So at this point, I didn't know that they had failed 10 times and were you know, broke too, just like me. All I knew is they had these big, big companies that I knew about. And I felt like such a pee on there, kind of hid, didn't say much to anybody, didn't talk to people. And I remember going up to Greg and I said, Greg, I need the best advice you can give me. Puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, Chris, I'm going to give you the best advice I can give anyone. And I said, yeah, yeah, Greg, give it to me. And he says to me, he says, give your best stuff away for free. And I said, Greg, dude, that's not the advice I was looking for, man. But it was the best advice you could have ever gave me. And through a journey you know, of a couple of years, I, I started surrounding myself with very wealthy individuals, multimillionaires, billionaires. And I start, because I was in finance and in Wall Street, I started asking questions about what they did with money. And what I found is, what the wealthy do with money and what all of us do with money and myself included at this point was totally different. The wealthy thing did things different and they weren't difficult. They just did things completely different starting with where they put their money first. They didn't put their money in banks. Like I always thought, all right, well, wealthy individuals must have millions of dollars in the bank. They had hardly any money in banks. Like if a guy was like a multi multi-millionaire, maybe he had, I don't know, 10, a hundred grand in the bank account. And I'm like, what is this all smoke and mirrors? No, they just found a different way to make their money work for them without having it sit in a bank account, without having it sit in a 401k. And all these are all things that just were foreign to me. I thought all wealthy people had big 401ks, bunch of money in IRAs. All the things I sold in my mind were the things that these wealthy people should have. And they had none of them. They had very little money in qualified plans.
0: Money likes to move.
1: By, thank you. You're absolutely right. Their money was in a constant state of motion. Their money started in a place that I'd never even dreamed of that called privatized banking, you know, which is giant mutually owned insurance companies instead of banks. And their money was always earning interest, even when the money was out working. And this was the biggest thing. And I learned this from this guy, Mike. Uh, his name's Mike Barrett. He had a show on A&E. So I was really attached to him because I went on to have a show on HGTV. And he was like my my, everybody needs like a, a path to follow, right? So Mike and his journey to get the show on A&E was my path. And that's how me and my wife did it. We just followed that and he helped open some doors. But Mike told me how he did what he did. And it was so foreign. I'll never forget. It. it was at a cheesecake factory in Salt Lake City, sitting there and having lunch. And just, he was lending me money for my real estate deals at this point. It was probably 2014. And I remember saying to him, I said, you know, Mike, how do you do all this? Like, how do you, how do you do lend? And he tells me, well, you know i set up a, a private tie he called it a private bank and I, I sat back i'm like you dirty dog you got yourself a bank man let's go to your bank let's go see this bank i can't believe you own a bank mike he says no, no 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 i i have a privatized bank it's a specially designed and engineered whole life it's not a bank and i'm like whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm like, dude i'm like first i'm thinking to myself what are you smoking because i'm like i'm an advisor whole life doesn't work that way and he goes on to explain it and instantly, I'm just like, holy crap. I felt like, again, now I felt like an idiot because I'm like, how do I not know this? How do I not know that banks are the number one purchasers of whole life in the world? And how do I not know that these guys, these wealthy individuals from the Rockefellers, the Rock, Rothschilds, the Walt Disneys, the Ray Crocs, right up to the sitting president today, all use this. And here I am an advisor and no one ever taught this to me. Really? I'm just like, you got to be kidding me. But it wasn't a regular whole life. It was completely different in the way it's designed. And this is what we do today. But you know, once i found this mike had learned this through a guy brent and brent uh when i called him up to have him explain it he says to me he says have you watched the video uh, robert this is like that defining moment right what video you know and he says i have a 90 minute video that you know before we do a call you got to watch this 90 minute video and to me i'm like i'm an advisor i've been an advisor 14 years i'm up here i make this my ego is all over it and he just calmly says he says well until you watch the video we can't talk and i'm like come on fine so I get myself a giant cup of coffee and I go down in my basement and I hit play on this stupid 90 minute video. And <laughs> it was honestly like it would be the equivalent of, you know, and anyone that's religious. I'm going to say this in, you know, in, in a way that I don't mean anything of it, but it would be like the coming, you know, the meeting Jesus moment. Like that was that was that moment where like I saw something. That, hit, that at that very moment, I knew it was going to change everything for me in the future. And it truly did. So I watched that 90 minute video and I started applying everything that was taught in that video, which was against everything I'd learned in Wall Street, completely different. Matter of fact, they, they would never even allow us to talk about it the way we were doing it because it reduced your commission so much that in the Wall Street world that I was in, like none of the advisors would even listen to it because, oh my God, we got to give up 90% of our commission to do it this way. Uh-uh, I'm not talking about it. But I knew that it would work because it worked for so many of these other people. And I started applying it. And then all of a sudden it just, everything, everything turned around. And so, I mean, that's, that's just a very abbreviated story today. I I help tens of thousands of people understand how money really works, the truth about money and the things that your advisors will never, ever tell you. Matter of fact, I work with some family offices and some advisory firms, and they just love what we do because it's, Something they will never do for obvious reasons. So we have a good symbiotic relationship, and uh, that's what I do. And I still snowboard and skateboard and do all the things that I used to do.
0: So let's chat a little bit about that that authenticity shift. That you know, when you jumped into being a financial advisor, you had to buy a suit, you had to had to conform to this what a financial advisor looks like, smells like, feels like, sounds like. And now you obviously are able to be you again. Let's talk about as an entrepreneur that that opportunity to be authentic, to to be yourself. Yeah, it was uh, it
1: was tough. You know, um, Steve Sims is a friend of mine, and he talks about this a lot. And like when he started to conform to you know all the billionaires he was working with, and he bought the suit, he bought the Ferrari and the Rolex, and you know he he looked great, but he felt so wrong. Well, that's kind of how I felt, and I was an advisor for sixteen years. I wore blue, navy blue, gray, or black suits, various, you know, pinstripes and everything. And in the beginning, when I went for that, that shift that you're referring to, I couldn't do it. You know, it just was too much for me to change who I was just to conform to what they wanted me to be. like I said, there was a company and I wear that company. This shirt right here, it's a company called Volcom, but I sold Volcom at my stores, which was an authentic skateboard snowboard brand. Luckily, because I was a, a shop owner, I, I had access to all of Volcom's clothing. And in the back of their catalogs, they had like two pages, which were custom Volcom suits. And I'm like, wait a second, I can buy a skateboard snowboard design suit. And they look different. They had crazy patterns on the inside. And that's how I did it. I still have those suits. I have like 10 of them. And they were so different than what the other advisors were. A lot of them said, Oh, where's that suit from? I'm like, "It's Volcom. And they're like, oh must be you know buying that at Walmart but it was it was a skateboard snowboard shop that, or company that made suits that's how I did it and then I kind of got out of that when I really settled into the Wall Street thing but it was tough and now you know I, I retired from Wall Street and sold my business in 2018 when me and my wife got our show on HGTV I had to make a decision they they wouldn't let me do another OBA which is an outside business activity. Uh, so they said you got to decide are you gonna be a financial advisor or are you gonna be a TV show star? I said see ya <laughs> sold it to this guy Mike who lives in my office and he he still pays me checks today but uh, that was the end of my Wall Street days and I don't regret it at all because at that point I, I had one foot out the door I didn't believe in in Wall Street as, as tr- traditional typical way anymore at that point because I'd seen too much you know and sometimes you can't go back you know you get so far in life sometimes it's just you can't go back to where you were well that was me and when I left Wall Street an interesting thing happened I, I never wanted to put a suit on. Now, Robert, you've seen me at events. Um, I typically wear all black. Okay. I wear an all black. The best you get from me is an all black button up shirt and some black jeans. And usually um, not always, but usually like I'll be rolling around in flip-flops. Half of it's just because I don't give a shit and I'm not, I don't care what people think. Like, you know, and I've had people on Instagram and TikTok say, well, who would do business with who would give money to somebody that uh, wears flip-flops? I said, Thousands not you. Of people.
0: <laughs> yeah, well,
1: not you, I guess, but Hey man, I, I guess I've, I've gone there and I've evolved and, and, um, I have so many suits and from time to time I'll put a blazer on with like a, a shirt or something, but, uh, I just, just can't do it anymore. And it's, it's nice because now I don't hide that I'm a skateboard snowboarder. You know, I don't hide that. I, you know, just don't care about the things that so many other people do, like the fancy watches and all that stuff. It's just, It's just not who i am i'm not trying to prove anything to anyone i'm just out there just doing what makes me tick and what makes me happy and following the calling and in that you know i i've developed my fourth book you know you're writing a book but i'm I'm writing my fourth book and it's for my daughter and it's to teach her the six laws of wealth and it's it's the hardest book i've ever written in my life uh probably because it's the one i'm putting the, the most emphasis on because it's like it's my my legacy for my daughter it's to teach her Laws. Now, everybody has strategies and concepts, and in maybe rules that you follow in life, but there are laws in, in the world, and universal laws can't be bent, changed, or modified. Go to the top of your building and jump. Tell me what happens. You are introduced very quickly into the law of gravity, and ain't nothing stopping in that. You're a pancake. So, probably aren't not talking to you right now.
0: We will be right back after this short break. This episode is sponsored by the newly released book. Dream Life Planner, Move from Tired and Overwhelmed to Free and Empowered by Noel L. Peterson. Available on Amazon. Or you can order a personalized signed copy at Empower2Dream.com. E-M-P-O-W-E-R That's Empower2Dream.com. number two, dream.com. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe. Leave a review. Tell your friends. Welcome back. Let's get back to more greatness.
1: But in, in money what I've established and what I've gotten through studying and and really looking deep into history before Christ, you know, back to the times of Babylon, money has rules and it has laws and it's been around forever. And what I've done is through all these studies, I've developed six laws that apply to wealth. And my book is about the six laws of wealth and how to follow them. And then 10 rules of prosperity that are how you apply the laws and, uh, my my daughter, all she has to do is just follow these laws and you can't break them. They are a true path to success. And if you follow them, which they're not hard, but everything in life will fight you against these laws. Lo- they will
0: fight against these laws. But if you just follow them, like there's no way you can't be successful. It's impossible. Love it. So you mentioned a couple of times, you know, people that you've turned to people that, that, that have come alongside you. Um, for entrepreneurs, how important is it to find mentors? How important is it to, to, to find someone that's done what you want to do? I get asked this a lot and I always think it's a stupid question.
1: No disrespect, but it's just like, I'm so far down the rabbit hole that I just can't understand why anyone would think that it's even an option to not have a mentor. Like I'm at a pretty high level now, you know, you, anyone that looks me up can see that. And I have many mentors and I will continue to have mentors and I pay my mentors all, a lot of money. You know Randy Garn, my my main coach and mentor, he's been my mentor for years. I mean, I pay him sixty thousand dollars a year. Most people are like, "Yeah, it's crazy. Is it though? How much money has is, is he made me? And and he doesn't do anything special. Sometimes he just keeps course correcting me. When my mind drifts and I start feeling boo-hoo, Chris, things are terrible, he course corrects me. When I get an idea, he doesn't bash the idea. He pushes me into that idea. You know, and sometimes you just need that extra thing. I don't know how to explain it, but I have had mentors in my life, probably for way longer. My mother was a mentor, um, you know, a free one. But Greg Greg Reed was a mentor, um, Scott Duffy, you know, and I paid all these people and paid them a lot. And the thing is, is your coaches and your mentors don't just find a coach and mentor just to say, I have a coach, find a mentor that has done something you desire to do. And then when you, you reach to the level that they reached, it's time to pat them on the back, say thank you for getting me here. You have to then change that destination because too many people r- arrive, and it's a syndrome. It literally there's a thing called the arrival syndrome. Um, a lot of people arrive at a certain level of success and they stop, you know, because they've arrived. And I will, I will tell, I will urge all of you never do that because the only place you will go after that is down. So all these different these mentors that I've had through the process is when I've reached a level where I felt like. I'm at the same, I'm at a level playing field of them. I strive for another mentor, but they all remain my friends and close allies. And some of them become business partners. And like, just think about that. What would your life look like if you just found somebody that is doing and has successfully done what you desire to do and they've done it, but they have done it and they've figured it out through time, wisdom, and knowledge or wisdom, time, and knowledge, which are order and probably failure. <laughs> Wouldn't it be easier just to ask them how to, how they did it? And then they give you the blueprint you just follow the blueprint. That's all a coach is there to do. A coach is only designed to get you to a point that they're experts in. And then you got to find another coach. I mean, I don't care who you look at. Elon Musk, one of the wealthiest men in the world. I guarantee you that guy's got multiple coaches and mentors in his world because he's got to have buttons like Henry Ford did. You need a button (laughs) for somebody that does something better than you. You're not a master of everything. You're actually a master of nothing if that's what you think you are. You should be a master at one, no more than two things. Stay in your lane and be an expert. Uh, you know, I often talk about doctors, right? So in my industry, you know, what, what I consider myself is the surgeon. You know, I'm a surgeon in, in the industry because we do one thing and we do it so well. And a lot of people are like, well, well, why wouldn't I just go to my agent or my advisor and do this? And I said, you can, but let me ask you this. If you were having serious heart problems and you know you were thinking, oh my God, I'm, I might be having a heart attack, something's wrong with my heart. That's pretty serious, right? You take that, you take that real serious. Now, some people would go to their physician, their normal doctor, and they would say, Doc, I got heart problems, like my arms going numb, I something's wrong. And your doctor is a generalist. Your doctor can diagnose colds and you know help you deliver babies and all sorts of fun stuff, but your doctor more than likely is not a heart surgeon so you could say to your doc 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 you just gotta operate in my heart and your doctor can say well you know i learned this in medical school but i've never done it but i'm willing to try You (laughs) feel real good about that no okay so you would probably ask for doc you know listen i appreciate the the candor and i appreciate you trying but you know do you have a a guy, a heart surgeon, you know, that's maybe done this a couple hundred times or a thousand times and like, that's all they do. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. You know, Dr. Jim, he does this every day. He's got a perfect text history. All right, I want to see Dr. Jim. So you go see Dr. Jim. Dr. Jim's like, yeah, this is what's going on. Your heart, this, that, and the other thing. Yeah, I can do the surgery. You know, you'll be out for about six weeks, you know, but I have a success rate of 99.9%. You're going to feel pretty good, right? You're going to wake up. You're going to go on with your life. I can't understand sometimes why people seek generalist
0: or when, why people want to be a generalist in that general sense. Well, there's, there's something about that, that trust authority, right? I think our, our human brain has got this thing. We see, see somebody in a white suit with a stethoscope around their neck and they're the expert. And, and they can tell us they that we have this disease. They can tell us that we have this, this, this problem, or they can tell us, you know, oh, you're going to feel terrible for the next three days. And guess what? You feel terrible for the next three days because this guy in a, told you in a white coat with a stethoscope around his neck, told you that that's exactly and and that expert authority. And so I'm thinking about that doctor in the white suit. And then I'm thinking about these expert financial experts, right? Every one of them puts on the suit and tie and all of a sudden they're a bleeping expert. And, and we know that 50% of the financial advisors that you're going to run into are in their first three years. <laughs> so, it's probably
1: higher so than
0: 50%. Probably, but, these guys, these guys haven't even, you know, they're not even running on res- residuals yet. So it's uh, it's an interesting dynamic, right, of, of put on the suit. And so you're the expert instead of finding out, hey, what does this guy really know, regardless of what he's wearing, regardless of, of the expectations. But we do have a cultural idea of what an expert looks like and we give them undue authority.
1: I, I couldn't agree more. And especially, and I hate to say this, but especially in the financial world. Now, mm-hmm. let, let me just give an example. Just yesterday, you know, we work with a, a family office and if you don't know what a family office is, family office is uh, kind of like an advisor, but they they work in a retainer capacity for very high net worth individuals. This this particular family office that I work with works with 15 million or more in assets. And, and the interesting thing is, is, you know, gentleman the the founder and proprietor of this family office um he doesn't wear a suit you know and when you're on the phone you know you're looking at him through a zoom like he's dressed decent you know he looks like he came off the golf course but he doesn't i've never seen him in a suit i'm sure he has plenty of them but again like this is a guy that's managing billionaires money in a family office capacity he doesn't look like the other advisors from AXA equitable or merrill lynch he just doesn't doesn't look like that doesn't doesn't have all that flash, and you sometimes got to ask yourself, like, why is he just not that good? Is he? Is he? I don't know. You know, is it because of the pandemic? Now he just doesn't wear a suit. No, no, he's just reached a level where he just truly doesn't doesn't have to. I'm sure he did for many years, much like I did for many many years. But you can't judge a book by its cover. Some of the smartest surgeons, outside of seeing them in their practice, like they don't they don't roll around in white, you know, doctor's coats. They don't. You ever see like a surgeon just like rolling around like they just look like everybody else. They're not trying to prove anything. And, and I just think in society, it was funny. I, I can't, I think it was an Ellen show. You know, she was going back and forth with the pandemic. You know, oh, we got all these things. We judge everybody by political, you know, side. We judge everybody vaxxed or unvaxxed. We judge everybody by color of their skin. Can't we just get back to the way we used to judge people? And everybody's like, oh, careful, Ellen. I think it was an Ellen. And she's like, Buy the car they drive. It's <laughs> <This is> so <laughs> funny. But, you know, it's just like, I don't know. I don't even know where that came from. My wife
0: told me that joke
1: and I just thought it was comical. But,
0: just- but there's a lot of truth. There's a lot of truth to that idea. And I think letting go of judgment is judgment's a scarcity mindset. And, and the idea that you have to judge others, whereas, you know, an abundance mindset seeks to love, right? Seeks to... To, to give and and one thing we can all give is love and, and if we're giving more love then we're not you can't give love and be judging um, right. Absolutely. and so and one of the things you mentioned was the calling and and your calling and recognizing your calling tapping into your purpose how do you help somebody dig out their purpose or 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 root out what, what really should be driving them. It's actually quite easy. Um, and I just did this with a girl. I got her
1: email her back today, but you know, I just asked her, I said, listen, I said, what is the one thing you would do if you didn't get paid for it and love every minute of it? And whatever that answer is, that's your passion. That's your, that's your calling. So in other words, like if somebody asked you to do something, what would it be that you would love to do every single day of your life? And you would do it even if you didn't get paid to do it. As soon as you find that, you pretty much found it. So for me back, you know, like when I was a kid, 16, 17, it was snowboarding. So what did I do? I I did what I loved. And and yeah, I mean, for the most part, I hate to say it. I mean, I kind of did work for free. I mean, back then, I think when I had the shops, those early years, I mean, I, I had my mom's house on the line. So I, I wasn't taking much. It took like 200 bucks a week, you know, which to me was freaking awesome because I w- I would do it for free. Today, you know, what I do is I teach people the secrets of the wealthy, what they do. And there's no advisor out there that will do what I do because there's no money in it. it the, 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 the banking policies that we set up for people, like the commission is cut 90%. We're working on nickels and dimes. But you see what we figured out at this point is if you help enough people solve their problem, Nickels and dimes add up quite quick because we understand compounding. Albert Einstein called it the eighth wonder of the world, the most powerful thing in the universe. Compounding doesn't just work for your money. It works for client numbers too. And if you just solve people's problems every day of your life, which is, is truly a law of wealth, it's the fifth law of wealth, solve other people's problems, then nothing will happen but success. And it was a slow go with what we did, but now we have 40, 40, about 4,800 clients and growing. And... You know, nickels and dimes on 4,800 and climbing is, is a lot of money. But for somebody that has a scarcity mindset, nickels and dimes don't add up to anything because they're always chasing that big hit, that big commission, that big payday. And when you do that, that big t- payday eventually leads to no payday. Um, I hate to say it, but the, the long, the long road wealth is, is a marathon folks. It's not a sprint and life is also a marathon not a sprint. If you sprint your way through life, you're going to fail to realize so many beautiful things and you're going to fail to understand love. You know, you got to just stop sometimes and realize that like the marathon's long, take your time, enjoy it. Like take a, take, look at marathon runners. They're not sprinting. You ever see a marathon runner or or one of those guys that do ultras? Jesse Itzler is my favorite. You ever (laughs) see them like running fast? No. You're just like, dude, you're barely fast walking. And One take, foot in front of the other. They're, and they're finishing the 100-mile race, folks. And, <laughs> and they're taking a whole lot of beauty in along that. And they're also putting themselves through a whole lot of pain. But the pain is outweighed because they would do it for free because they love it. So if you want your calling, just figure out what you would do every day of your life, even if you didn't get paid for it. And then right. eventually you just figure out the how, which is how you get paid for it. And it comes naturally because if you figure the why out, the how always follows behind. It's kind of like luck. Some people, are, oh, you got lucky. Luck doesn't exist. It, it, it's not even real. Opportunity. Opportunity exists and luck just follows right behind.
0: Absolutely. But
1: also luck can follow behind bad attitudes. You got a bad attitude, a negative attitude. Oh, luck follows behind
0: that too. They call that bad luck. That's right. You get You get what you put out. <laughs> hundred percent. Absolutely. All right. So mentioned your family, mentioned love. So I want to hit a couple of these. Uh, what do you love to do in your free time? I love to
1: skateboard. Uh, I try to go to the skate park as much as I can during the summer. In the winter, I try to snowboard. I mean, now I have a daughter. She's 23 months. So everything I'm doing now is just revolving around her and just spending time with her, hanging out with her, just reliving everything through her. I mean, we just got her a sandbox. We just got her a trampoline and just everything. I mean, we call her Vivi the destroyer because she just destroys the house every day, but I'm just reliving like that moment of her just enjoying like all these things, which are, everything's brand new. Just imagine if everything in your life every day was just a new experience. It was all fresh and new, like so exciting to see. And I try to just make sure I
0: focus on that. So that's what I spend my time doing. Love that. All right. What was your most memorable date with your wife?
1: There was a time we went to uh, Pacific beach in California. I think we we're out there for a mastermind or something. And we just went to a restaurant. We just sat there. I had a beer and we just talked and we just don't do that a lot. And that was one of the most memorable dates that I think I've ever had. Cause it was truly a date. And we just sat there for hours, just talking. And uh, I loved it.
0: You've mentioned a lot of play and fun, but I still always want to make sure we, we ask it specifically talking about, you know, how important is, is play and fun as an entrepreneur, as a, as, as a business person in, in, in finance, right? You mentioned those financial advisors doing 60 hours a week. And, and even when you were doing it, you know, start the day at seven and doing dinners at seven and eight <laughs> with clients. Um, sometimes play and fun can get lost.
1: Oh, uh, they do. And, and listen, I'd be lying to you if I tell you that they don't get lost today. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I travel a lot and speak on stages across the country and, you know, I, I just, I lose my days. You know, my days, it's been pretty good the last couple, probably month because I've, I've tried taking it easy. Cause I just, I hit burnout mode, but I I'll go from 6.00 AM till eight o'clock every day. And then I'll, I'll still be behind and come in on weekends. And and I get myself in that pattern of doing that until somebody stops me. Now I've got a good support system. I have a big staff and my director of operations and Gabby who uh, helps my calendar and everything. They are pretty in tune with me and they will, that I don't do my own calendar, my time blocking, because if I do, I, I will work myself to death. I mean, there's just certain people, entrepreneurs specifically, you know, we're usually type A's and workaholics and and I am, I mean, for me to work a 12 hour day is like the average person working an eight hour day for me to work a you know, 15 hour day is, is actually pretty normal. And I don't feel exhausted after it, but that's dangerous because you miss a whole lot. You, you, you know, there's a book, uh, the one thing, uh, that you've read that, but in that book, he talks about work-life balance and he he basically defies that that doesn't exist. There is no work-life balance. There is a counterbalance in my life is a giant counterbalance. I swing one side to work and I get hyper-focused on it and I get very productive and make a ton of money. But then I, I realize, oh my God, over on the other side, I've neglected my family and I'm not seeing my daughter. And I've been on the road for six months every week. And then I, I counterbalance back over to the family side. And then maybe I spend so much time here that I I can maybe, you know, need to get back over, which is where I'm at right now. So now I'm counterbalancing back over to work and talking with my partner about getting back on the road to go out and speak some more. And it's just, life is a counterbalance. You know, there's never going to be perfect harmony in your life. There's just not. You just have to focus on the things that, that are important to you. And love should always be the first and foremost thing you focus on. And, and after that, just, Make sure you, you you know, they say stop and smell the roses, but make sure you just make that time. Nobody's going to make it for you. I mean, unless you have a Gabby who does your calendar, nobody's going to make it for you. Like I can make excuses every day. Why not? Why not to go to the gym? You know, I just, just finished my second, um, little bout with, with COVID. It was like a mild cold this time, but you know, like I haven't been into the gym in 14 days because of that. So I need to get back in the gym, but it's hard because now I'm in the habit of not going. Now I need to force myself back. And same thing with the skate park. I love the skate park, but you can find a million things to do that keep me from going to the park. And I need to, I I just need to be there once a week, you know, and that's it. And you just need to make the time for the things that you love. Because if you don't make the time, you're going to lose them.
0: Well, and mentioning that is really setting boundaries, but boundaries based on design. And so you have the opportunity to design your business around the things that are important to you. And if that's family, you put a boundary around family. If that's skate park, you put a boundary around skate park. For some people, it's the gym and and other things. And and we choose to put boundaries around those things to to protect them. And I love that, you know what, I can't manage my calendar because I'll put too much on it, which is the opposite of most people. And, and that you've let that go. You've delegated that to somebody to protect yourself. Um, and that's really important. So would you share a little bit about designing your life? You mentioned earlier about the guys that feel like they've arrived and, and it's because they've, they've gotten to their design and they haven't redesigned to, to another level. Right. And, yeah. and I know, um, when I spoke with Kate Erickson, her and John Lee Dumas, they, they, their business basically overran them. And they realized, wait, this isn't what we got into entrepreneurship for. Right. We wanted that four hour work week that Tim Ferriss was talking about. And you can redesign and, and change to to do the things that you want to do and protect the things you want to protect. And and it's always a choice. And so how you design your business, that's one of the greatest freedoms uh, of being an entrepreneur.
1: Yeah, and, and it's very important. And everybody is going to have that moment where you literally every entrepreneur goes through this where You become a component of your business and you feel trapped and that it's going to happen to all of you so don't think you're going to avoid that um just natural thing you got to learn but eventually you got to pull yourself out for me you know listen if you don't pull yourself out something's going to happen that's going to force you out hopefully it's not a medical condition the universe is a very powerful thing don't fight it it'll give you gut feelings and if you don't follow them unfortunately the next things will be things that force you to make those decisions and mine were forced uh, too many times And I started having, when I went into Wall Street, I was forced to work on my business, my shops, not in them. And it was very difficult. But as I learned when I started working on them and I empowered other people to become managers running it, I learned that they could do the job better than me today. So today, you know, I I do that. You know, there's things that I'm weak at, lots of things I'm weak at. And I hire my weaknesses. I truly do. And a lot of people, you know, you call it whatever you are, but like little things like mowing the lawn. I enjoy mowing the lawn. I love the smell. I like it. But I don't mow my lawn because I, I, I know that that time could be better spent with my daughter. And, and I just try not to do tasks that, you know, I, I, I can hire out and somebody's better at it than me. Another thing, too, that's important on this exact topic is goes back to one of my mentors. So I've been through lots of time. You heard my story. I've been through lots of up and downs. And, and one of my you know, moments where I was bouncing back up, you know, I hired a mentor. I wanted to hire a mentor. And he was a, a really big name. I'm not going to give his name and he doesn't take everybody on. And I had two interviews with him. Just, just think about that, right? You wanna, you wanna hire somebody and they're probably gonna be 30 grand a year and you have to do interviews to see if they even will take your 30 grand. Like that's the caliber of this guy. And I remember the, the second interview, the first one was just get to know each other. But the second one, it was, it was very direct and almost uncomfortable. And he says to me, he says, why do, you, why do you work so hard? And I'm like, oh, this, this, this. He said, wrong, try again. And, and I gave another answer. And this went on for 15 minutes. I emptied my, my chamber of everything that I thought was the reason I worked so hard and the reason I was doing this. And he shot me down in every one of them. And I was just, dist- I was so like mad. And finally, I'm just throwing my arms up. I'm like, then, then tell me, like, why do I work so hard? And he says, this is why we probably can't work together. And he says, the one thing you don't yet understand is the one thing I need you to understand and do before I'll ever even take, you know, this engagement on. And he says, you don't understand what your perfect day looks like. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, every successful person knows what a perfect day looks like to them. And most of them, real good ones, he said, they can define that perfect day from the second they open their eyes to the moment they close. And they can tell me everything they see, everybody they're with, everything that they touch, what everything looks like, the cars in their garage, where they drive to, how they go through their day. They can tell that to me. Can you? (laughs) And I had no freaking clue. No, I, I literally couldn't even get past, well, when I wake up, uh, what would I want my perfect? I, I couldn't get past that. So what I did is I literally spent, it took me about 30 days and I focused on it very intently and I designed my perfect day. I knew everything. When I wake up, I was on silk white sheets. I knew who was next to me. I, the, the wind was coming through the, the all glass windows, which, you know, face the ocean and I could hear the ocean. I could feel the ocean breeze. I could smell the salt. And, and I had that straight through the whole day the cars in the driveway, the cars in the garage, everything. I knew what it all looked like, but as I did that and I figured that out and I explained this to him, which I, I had to email it to him, which sucked. And then he took me on and he coached me, but I've never forgot that perfect day. Now, a lot of the aspects of that perfect day have, have matured and happened, but I've had to then up them and change them. The cars in the garage like have long been accomplished and, and been upgraded. And you know, so many of the house has been upgraded and everything, but there's certain things that can't be upgraded in my life right now because you know I put family first. I live in Buffalo, New York, not, not the place where I want to be, but my mom's here and my mom is my unconditional one and I could never take my daughter from my mom because they're best friends. So it keeps me here. So there's certain elements of my perfect day that I have to trick. So folks, this is a, a thing to, to very much pay attention to. You can trick your mind. For example, My perfect day involves me being on a beach. I'm a big surfer. I'd love to wake up and look out and see the ocean and hear the ocean and smell the ocean. But I can't. Okay, I have to travel on a plane to do that. But it doesn't mean that I can't trick my mind into believing that I live on the ocean. So what I started doing is Amazon. You guys have all seen them have those little speakers at night. Alexa, play ocean waves. So all night long, I hear the crash of the ocean waves those little uh, oil scents where you can get ones that smell like ocean salt. So I just, I, pl- I burn, well, I don't want to call it burn, but you just put one of those in the diffuser and it just gives the aroma, the ocean breeze. How do you take care of that? Well, we have a ceiling fan. So at night we just turn the ceiling fan on. So there's just a constant breeze and the rest of it you can manipulate. You can just write bed sheets, write curtains. So folks like don't ever think that just because of your environment, you can't live your perfect day because maybe you're in the wrong place or something can't happen. Trick your mind. Your mind doesn't know the difference. And it's the same thing. Like you might not be at the level of successful well, trick your mind, tell your mind that you are successful. Start believing you are successful. Start living the life you want to live. And all of a sudden one day you wake up and you're like, Oh shit, I'm living the life I, I've been thinking about because that's the way it works. You want the secrets to wealth and everything else change the way you think. That's it. Start creating. Stop listening to failed like people that their dreams they, they, they didn't go after them. Stop listening to failed dreams, failed realities. Start listening to why you were put on this earth, which is your calling, your dreams. There's no other reason in the universe or in God or whatever your religion is or whatever your belief is that you have the ideas you do in your head. That's not a coincidence. It's not. Your dreams are your dreams and your dreams alone. And when you let somebody take them from you, shame on you. Like the like God in the universe knows you just let that go. You, that was meant for you to accomplish. That was your calling maybe. So too many people can form and that's the biggest Absolutely.
0: thing. Absolutely. So obviously you're a money guy. You, you care about money. You care about move, moving money and, and helping people understand money. So how has the value of contribution been a part of, of your success? It's one of the laws of wealth. You have to give. You have to solve other people's problems. So let me just tell
1: you how I did this because I was just like all of you. Oh, I'll give when I get. You know, when I have, I'll give. So here's what I started doing. And I, I, this is very old. And I, if I could go back to my younger self and give one piece of advice, I would say give, give more and start now. And here's what I do. Now, you all in the mail, right? You get letters that ask you for things, right? They'll, you know, whether it's uh, ASPCA asking for donations for the animal charity or a cancer society or wounded warriors, right? You get them all. We all get them. Now, most of us, you know, we look at them and like, oh, here they are asking for money again. And then you throw it out. And then you get one where they give you a nickel and you're like, oh, they gave me something. So, all right, maybe I'll do it. And then all of a sudden, the second you give, what happens? You get more of them in the mail. They just start coming in faster and faster. So here's what I did. Changed the way I think about this. I, I had to start giving more because I know it's it's what God would want, and it's what you know God talks about in the Bible, and it's it's what the universe wants. Give, give, give. So I get these things in the mail, every one of them, and my staff here is trained to do this. They put them on my desk, and I open them up. Zero emotion. I don't care who it is. I don't care what they're asking for. I tear the little thing off, and you know, I whatever I'm feeling, I write a dollar note, five bucks some days, 10, 100 sometimes. And there's really no emotion. It's not because one's better than the other. Just whatever comes in my gut, okay? Not my heart, my gut. And and I just write them out. And I physically write a check because the act of writing the check is the most powerful thing. And (laughs) you can only imagine, I've been doing this now for about two years. And I do it every time I get one. On my desk right now is a stack of them because it's literally a chore for me. Now I I get so many, I have to like block time off or come in early to write these. But there's never one that gets thrown in the garbage can, never, never. I might have so many of them that maybe I just give $10 to every one of them, but I keep doing this over and over again. And I feel like it's a test. I feel like it's a test of the universe and, and, and of you know, God or whatever you want to call it as to where is your breaking point? Well, there is no breaking point because you should never have a limit to how much you give. I just keep doing it folks. And listen, like some people would say, well, why do you waste so much time writing checks? Well, listen, when it becomes a burden for me and I'm stressed out because I have so many of them, I'll hand the checkbook off to Gabby and I'll say, write checks and whatever you want to put down on the checkbook, do it. Because here's the thing. There will never come a day for the rest of my life that there will be more money that I write checks for than, than what I get. Hmm. And it's not that I'm focused on the get, but it's just a lot. It's just whatever you want to call it. A law of the universe. When you give, you get, and if you just keep giving more, you keep getting more, but don't focus on the get, focus on the give. The get will always come automatically. The more I give a crazy thing. And it's not just because I'm at a point in my life where I'm making more, the more I give, the more money I make in the weirdest ways. Sometimes I'll write a big check and then all of a sudden a big check. I I could go on for days about this. You write a big check and you're like, oh, wow, that's going to hurt. Then all of a sudden, the next day, a big check shows up in the mail. I swear to you, that has happened too many times for it to be a freaking coincidence. And I can't explain it.
0: <laughs> well, that leads me to gratitude and the power of, of gratitude um, in shifting your focus, your, your attitude, um, your mindset
1: So gratitude, I mean, it's kind of everything I just said. You you should, here's how I do it. Every morning I wake up, I just get down on my knee and I just say, thank you for this day. Sometimes that's all I say. You know, you just got to give gratitude for something. And for me, it's just very simple. There's too many things to be grateful for sometimes in life. So just be thankful for the day. The rest is all inside of that little wrapper. And that's what I do. I mean, I, I know that's not probably the most elaborate answer I could give, but it's just how I do it.
0: All right. I want honest answers. I don't need elaborate. <laughs> so that that's a, a piece of a routine. Are there other routines? You mentioned gym earlier. You mentioned some other yeah. things. Are there other routines for you that are, are important?
1: Yeah. Tuesdays and Fridays are gym days. So I'm at the gym at seven o'clock to eight o'clock. And then, you know, I do that. That's a routine. Um, coffee, I love coffee. So, you know, first thing I do in the morning after I drop to my knee is, and, and I got cats too. So I feed the kitties and get the day after like that after I thank God and I go downstairs and make my coffee i hang out with the, the daughter's always up at that time hang out with her for a little and just go off to the day
0: love but it. i think right. my days
1: are way more regimented than what i actually think but i don't know <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right chris what's the big dream
1: the big dream yep gosh the big dream would be you know like my mother doesn't ever have to work again she can just be you know full-time nanny taking care of Vivi, which she would love to do um just being able to do what I want when I want, um, have freedom of time, which I truly don't have quite yet. Um, and I need to just make the changes that give me that freedom of time. I'll never stop working. Like there's never a day where I'm going to retire. I just, I'm not wired that way, but I just want to keep doing what I love to do and just do more and more of it. And the thing that gets me out of bed every day is the the testimonials, the people that tell me how we've helped shape their lives, change their finances and change their, their family's finances. And, uh, That just keeps you going.
0: Absolutely. All right, Chris, you spent the last hour having that coffee with an entrepreneur and you're going to leave him with Chris's words of wisdom. What would you share?
1: Yeah, I would always share Will Rogers quote. Will Will Rogers said the biggest problem in America is not what people don't know. The biggest problem in America is what people think they know. That just ain't so.
0: Very true, Chris. Thank you so much for hanging out today and sharing so much wisdom and and just sharing from your heart. Appreciate you taking the time. You're very welcome. Thank you. If you enjoyed the show, please like, subscribe, or leave a review. We have a free gift for you at AddValueMindset.com. That's A D D ValueMindset.com. We've collected some of the best mindset secrets shared by successful entrepreneurs on our podcast, and we want to give them to you for free. ADD value mindset.com. In our next episode, Chris Johnson and Robert discuss the compound value of relationships and viewing relationships as an investment. Side hustles are good and most everyone should have one. The entrepreneurs break away from the employee paternal mindset and find freedom where they thought security was a priority.